we were thinking about uh, the work of missions. Last week I said that the mission of the church is singular. We exist as a church to glorify God together. And we do that in several ways. We glorify God through worship as together with one voice we worship him. Uh, We glorify God together through discipleship as we study his word and learn to love and serve the Lord more. And then we we, we worship and glorify God through the work of missions. And that is the particular area that we are thinking about these few weeks we are in Luke chapter 10. And today, I want us to focus on this one idea, this singular idea I want you to take home today, that missions is warfare. Missions is warfare. Now, before we read our uh, verses together, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our Lord, we do thank you for your perfect, inspired, and true, and powerful word. We have heard many, many voices this week, Heavenly Father, and we pray now in the moments ahead that it would be your voice that we hear speaking to us from your word. Uh, Help us to see together the, the victory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to be encouraged and emboldened by that reality to go into all the world and make the name of Jesus Christ known. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. All of us have probably seen a movie with a scene that goes something like this. It's just before a great battle, and the commander of the army gives a rousing call to arms to his men to encourage them for the battle ahead, to embolden them for the task that uh, they face. He calls them to arms to give themselves wholly to the cause that they support. I want to suggest to you today that the verses we just read together, in many ways, read that way. And I think the the, the verses before us are going to remind us that missions is indeed warfare and that we are soldiers called to the battle and our commander is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Our enemy is Satan and his forces. Our cause is the kingdom of God and the salvation of the lost. And our weapons are not carnal, 
but spiritual. The word of God and the gospel of God, which is the power of God unto salvation. Maybe you'll ask, so who belongs to this army? Who are, who, who are soldiers in this army? And the answer is, in this passage, the disciples of Jesus Christ. We could say men and women, boys and girls, old and young, strong and weak, all of them have a part to play in this army. All of them have something to contribute to this great cause of making the name of Jesus Christ known. Now, just in case, at the start, you're concerned, you know, Jared's maybe off his rocker a little bit and is trying to turn Trinity into some kind of small militia that's going to overcome the people of Johnstown and the surrounding regions. Let me assure you that's not what I'm saying. And let me clarify. We are in Luke chapter 10, which is all about missions. In fact, the word, we get the word missions indirectly from the word Jesus uses as he sends out these disciples. And that's how this story began. Jesus sent out the disciples on mission. And then he defined their mission for them, sending them out to verbally proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and the possibility of peace through the forgiveness of sins. And so we saw that the the fundamental task, the heart of missions, is the proclamation of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and proclaiming the good news of peace with God through Jesus Christ. Without that, you don't have Christian missions. And so this is what Jesus says Christian missions is. And I also said last week that that the, the sending out of the disciples anticipated the future global work of the church to take the good news of the kingdom and the possibility of peace to all the nations. But in our passage today, as I said, I want us to see one simple fact that missions is warfare. That missions inevitably leads to conflict. Not the kind of war and conflict that you're used to hearing about on the daily news. This is spiritual warfare, but it is real warfare nonetheless. I want us to see how these verses call us to engage in this fight. It is a a call to arms that encourages us, on the one hand, with the certainty of the victory of our commander, Jesus Christ. And therefore, it emboldens us to give ourselves to this great cause of making Jesus Christ known. So I want to unpack those ideas with you this morning. And the first thing I want us to see in this passage is that missions is warfare that signals the absolute victory of Christ. That's our first point if you want to take notes today. Missions is warfare that signals the absolute victory victory of Christ. Look down at verses 17 and 18 with me. As the 72 returned from their mission with joy, they said to the Lord, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now this description of Satan falling from heaven anticipates what Jesus would ultimately achieve through his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. 
But what I want you to see this morning is that the victory of Christ is already present ahead of time. The victory of Christ has already been inaugurated over Satan and his demons. And we've seen this already in the Gospel of Luke. That from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, it has been a, a military conquest of victory. And so you remember in Luke chapter 4, the very first uh, stage in Jesus' public ministry after his baptism, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one, to be tempted by Satan. And you remember what Luke did there? He, he connected that narrative of temptation with the first Adam back in the garden. The end of Luke chapter 3 traces the genealogy all the way back to the first man. Because you remember the first Adam who lived in this beautiful, lush garden, he too was tempted by the evil one. And he rebelled against the Lord. And he, through his actions and through his rebellion, brought sin and ruin and death. And we are meant to see in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus marches into the wilderness created by our sin and he faces down temptation as a conquering victor. And instead of sin and ruin and death, Jesus brings righteousness and restoration and eternal life. And then from another perspective, the rest of Jesus' public ministry is, it can rightly be seen as a conquest of victory. As Jesus went throughout the region of Galilee teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, what was he met by? He was met by demonic opposition. At times, Satan threw an, enti an entire army of demons at Jesus, but they were no match for him. As people ask this question all the time, why, why is there so much demonic activity in the Gospels and, and, and we don't see it in the rest of, of Scripture? And I think the simple answer is this, because Jesus is there. Because Satan understands who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. The way I, I like to think about it is, uh, you know, I lived in Florida for a few years and every once in a while in our backyard, a, a mound of, uh, from fire ants would develop. And I couldn't resist the temptation of taking a stick and, and poking at it, right? And, and immediately the mound would be covered in these fire ants seeking to defend their territory. Well, that's kind of what's happening in the Gospels. Jesus has broken into this sinful and fallen world and Satan is ushering the troops. He's sending them out, but they are no match for him. And now as we come into our passage here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples in his name, with his authority, as ambassadors of his kingdom. And so as they proclaim the kingdom of Christ and the possibility of peace with God through him, and as people receive that message, and were brought into the kingdom of God and begin experiencing the blessings of belonging to the kingdom of God, it all signaled the absolute victory of Jesus Christ over Satan. That's what's going on here. It's showing us ahead of the cross that Satan is a defeated and conquered foe. This is how Jesus interpreted the results of this mission. As people 
experienced peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. As they became citizens in the kingdom of of Christ. Christ describes it this way to his disciples. I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. This can be a hard verse to understand. And if you've ever studied it, you know, people have written books and articles about it. And you can read those books and articles about it and come away thinking, yeah, so what does this verse actually mean? (laughs) So let's try to think about this for a few minutes, because I think it's teaching us a very important truth. Let's, let's Let's try to understand this verse by asking ourselves a question. How does missions display Satan's defeat and the victory of Christ? Well, let's unpack that. In the Bible, we understand that Satan is known and revealed as as a great deceiver. It's what he did in the very beginning, isn't it? He, He deceived Adam and Eve and led them into rebellion against God so that when they sinned against God, then Satan rose up as an accuser. And he demanded God's judgment on human sin. And of course, God has to judge sin because God is just. And so this is what Satan has been in the practice of doing from the very beginning. He deceives and, and, he, has, and he accuses And and it goes to a global scale. He deceives the nations, leading them in rebellion against God. And, And of course, God has to judge that sin because he is just. And the result of that judgment is death and separation from God. You see what's happening here in the gospel. Now Jesus sends out his disciples... And and let me just slip this in as a caveat. You remember last week, we said that the nations are in view in this passage. That the 70 or the 72, depending on which manuscript you're looking at, draws back to Genesis chapter 10 in the table of nations. So the nations are in view here. And Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim truth in the place of lies. And they proclaim a message that spells the end of Satan's accusations because they are sent to offer the possibility of forgiveness and peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ and eventually the very destruction of death itself. And so Jesus brings an an end to Satan's deception through the proclamation of his gospel He shuts the mouth of the accuser by dying for our sins. So that Paul can say in Romans that who is to condemn? It is Christ who died. And then Jesus stripped Satan of his power as the author of Hebrews talks about. He stripped Satan of the power of death by himself dying on the cross and rising again from the dead so that all who believe in him they too will be raised to everlasting life. So I think about it this way. Jesus is showing us that from beginning to end, Satan is a comprehensively defeated enemy. Satan is like, Satan is like an enemy who has had his weapons disarmed. You can think of 
The life and ministry of Jesus Christ is a marching into the armory of the evil one and, and removing the firing pins. This is what Jesus has done. There's, there's nothing Satan can do to us once we have trusted in Jesus Christ. Yes, our sin renders us guilty and worthy of condemnation before God, but it is Christ who died and Christ who was condemned for his people. Yes, our sin merits eternal death and eternal judgment, but Christ died and broke the chains of death and took the power of death away from the evil one. He's a a defeated foe. The sting of death has been removed. So when when Jesus says, I saw Satan falling from heaven, it anticipated what he would achieve ultimately through his own death and resurrection. So my friends, take personal encouragement in this this morning. Satan has no hold on those who belong to Jesus. He is is an enemy whose weapons fire blanks against you. And he he is a prosecuting lawyer whose case collapses in the divine court of law. And so the the downfall of Satan that will ultimately be achieved through Christ's own death and resurrection, it's all anticipated here. And we see other places in the Bible that spell this out for us. We we heard an example, that's why we chose the assurance of pardon from Colossians 2. Just listen to those words again, if you have your bulletin, in Colossians 2, uh, 13 through 15. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Colossians, that's one place we see this. But I want you to go in your Bibles to one other place. Go forward to Revelation chapter 12. And I want to read a few verses here for us. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. So we're seeing what Christ's death and resurrection achieved. And the overthrow of Satan. And look at verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. So the work of missions, the work of going out and proclaiming the kingdom of Christ and the possibility of peace with God through Jesus Christ is warfare. We declare the victory of Christ over Satan and sin and death And the kingdom is proclaimed and as people embrace the gospel and as people are brought into the kingdom of God, it is all signaling 
the absolute victory of Christ over Satan. Now, when we think about missions as warfare, again, it's important we realize we're talking about spiritual warfare. Christians sometimes have gotten this mixed up. They sometimes have gotten this wrong. Jesus is not calling us to to go on crusades and conquer people with a sword. And so far as Christians have done that in the name of Christ, they have they've fundamentally misunderstood the message of Christ and the mission of Christ. But here we learn that proclaiming Christ and his kingdom is indeed to engage in a battle. That is exactly why the disciples come back rejoicing, saying, Lord, even even the demons were subject to us in your name. And it's why Jesus talks about Satan, the great adversary, falling from heaven like lightning. The disciples, you see, are, are, are caught up in this ongoing battle that began in Genesis chapter 3 between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So it's important we get this. Just think about some some applications here. When, When we engage in missions, we need to have this mentality. We are engaging in in warfare. We need, to, we need to recognize the fact that when we send missionaries out, we are, we are sending them out onto the front lines of a battlefield. Incidentally, that ought to maybe shape the way that we care for them and, and treat them when they're home on furlough. We want to be a refreshment to them. Uh, it also means that when you engage in a conversation with your neighbor or your coworker or your friend or family member, my friends, you, and you're talking about Christ, you are engaging in a spiritual conflict, in, in battle. And even now, this morning, as the church worships the Lord and as the gospel of Christ is proclaimed, we are declaring the absolute victory of Christ over Satan, and we are engaging in warfare. And so that's the first thing I want us to see, that missions is is warfare that signals the absolute victory of Christ. But we need to see a second thing that develops in this passage, and it's this, that missions is, is an ongoing conflict where authority is given and protection promised. Say that again if, you, if you're taking notes, that missions is an ongoing conflict where authority is given and protection promised. Somebody might say, okay, well, okay, Satan has fallen from heaven like, like lightning, and the disciples of Jesus have authority even over evil spiritual forces. Then, well, that means the war has come to an end, and we Christians can march forth in glorious victory and go out on a triumphalistic parade, conquering the nations with the gospel. Well, Jesus says, hold on, hold on a minute. Actually, this conflict is ongoing. And so look what he says. He says, I have given you authority in verse 19. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Okay, so again, through his death and his resurrection, Christ conquered Satan. He's been raised up and is seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, and it it rules above all things. 
and his victory is being proclaimed. But we need to understand, while Satan is a conquered foe, he is still an active enemy who will seek to oppose the cause of Christ. And so that explains what Jesus says in verse 19 about the disciples trampling uh, snakes and scorpions. And Jesus is not promising his disciples authority over uh, uh, reptiles and, and arachnids. That's not what's going on here. The snakes and the, the scorpions represent Satan and all those who are in allegiance with him. So see what Jesus is actually doing. He is equipping his soldiers for the fight. He gives them not only this authority, but then he also promises protection. Now, protection in the sense that there is nothing that Satan can do to ultimately separate God's people from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that Satan can do to separate people from the love of God in Christ Jesus, who, who is our life and our salvation. And some may very well, as we sang about a few minutes ago, uh, those who gave their lives in proclaiming the gospel and the cause of Christ. But Satan, Jesus is saying, Satanly, Satan can't ultimately harm any of them. And so that's what he's saying in this verse. Jesus gives disciples authority to go out and proclaim the kingdom and the possibility of peace with God. And whatever Satan may try to do in opposition, he is utterly unable to do any real lasting harm to God's people. And so while Satan is a conquered enemy, though, we need to get this into our thinking. He is still an active adversary. And while he has, in terms of Revelation 20, he has been bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations, he is still actively opposed to Christian missions. So there are battles to be fought. Some of you know how Oscar Coleman illustrates this with D-Day and V-Day of World War II. The missionary task of the church is being carried out between the victory of Christ on the cross and the final victory of Christ when he returns and casts Satan into the lake of fire for all eternity. Oscar Coleman says that that's kind of like the time between D-Day and V-Day. War historians studying World War II are almost unanimously agreed that D-Day was the decisive victory of the Allied forces against uh, the Axis forces. When they landed in Normandy in June 1944, that, that was a death blow to the Axis forces. And yet, there were still battles to be fought. There was still opposition. There, was still, there were still casualties that happened in this fight. As the Allied forces advanced throughout Europe, before the enemy was utterly conquered, there was battles to be fought. And Oscar Coleman says that's exactly what it's like at this stage in redemptive history for the missionary task of the church. Right? The church carries out her mission to the world between these two great events. The decisive victory of Christ in his death and resurrection and the final victory of Christ on the last day. Victory is, is guaranteed 
because of what Christ accomplished on Calvary. But there will be opposition and rejection. There are still snakes and scorpions. Jesus is still sending his lambs out into the midst of wolves, as he talked about earlier in this passage. That's what missions is, Jesus said. And so we need to understand that the, actually, the more we engage in this battle, the more likely we are to experience this opposition and rejection. And the thought crossed my mind this week is, is part of the reason that the Western church, at least in the last several decades, experiences so little opposition Is it because we spend so little time on the front lines, in the trenches, proclaiming the kingdom of God? Now, there is, is, of course, and I said this last week, something, something unique about this group of disciples and the kind of the kind of authority Jesus gave them, authority to cast out demons. But I want to say that's not the primary way the authority he gave them was actually exercised. The primary way the authority that Jesus gave these disciples was exercised as they proclaimed the kingdom of God. And as they offered people peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's actually how their authority was primarily exercised. That's why Jesus said back in verse 16, those who hear you hear me. You you speak on my behalf. But actually when they reject your words, they are rejecting me and the one who sent me. And this is the same authority, my friends, that this is what I want to get to. This is the same authority that Jesus has given to his church. He calls us to go into the world and to declare the victory of Christ over Satan and sin and death. He authorizes and commissions us to speak as his authoritative ambassadors. Now there will be opposition. There will be rejection. Jesus promises all of that, just like there were for the 72. But my friends, we we need to understand that This Jesus who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth authorizes the church to speak for him. And here is our encouragement as we think about this. Nothing, not even Satan himself, can thwart the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing Satan can do to stop this message from going forth. Nothing Satan can do to keep the nations from being undeceived by the gospel. Nothing Satan can do from people being brought into the kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is declaring here. And so I think verse 19 has so much to teach us. This this group of disciples anticipates the global work of the church that began in Acts. And Pentecost, and as the gospel began to go into Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And my friends, that is the torch you and I carry. That that is the message that has been given to us, and entrusted to us, and we have been commissioned to make it known. 
I take, I take great comfort and confidence in this fact. Jesus is saying, I've given you the message that will undeceive the nations, that will set captives free, that gives people peace and eternal life, and nothing can harm you. I mean, what, what more could we need than that? I've, I, Jesus said, I've taken away that possibility by my own death and resurrection. The worst Satan can do is kill you. And what does that mean for the disciple of Jesus Christ? You enter into the presence of God until that great day when Satan is cast into the lake of fire and Jesus returns and establishes a new heaven and a new earth of, of righteousness and joy and peace and we will be with Christ forever. There's nothing he can do to harm the church of Jesus Christ. And so as we engage in missions, my friends, yes, there will be rejection and opposition. It, it is a battle. But people will hear about Jesus Christ. People will come into earshot of the message that is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And the Father will be drawing people to himself, pulling people into the kingdom of God, and the mission of God will be carried out through his people. Tuck this away. As a church, Jesus authorizes Trinity Presbyterian Church to trample Satan in the dust. Missions is battle. And then third, and uh, quickly here, Missions is joyful service. Now, this passage is filled with joy. At the beginning of the week, that's what I intended to focus on as I started studying the, these verses. The disciples returned rejoicing at what they saw. Jesus rejoiced with them in Satan's downfall. And then in verse 21, Jesus rejoices in the Father's amazing, sovereign grace. But here in verse 20... Jesus tells his disciples what should really cause them to, to leap with joy. Look at, what, look at verse 20. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, uh, guys, it's actually wrong that you were just rejoicing in the fact that the demons were subject to you. I don't think this is a rebuke from the, from the Lord Jesus here. Some people read it that way, that he's telling the disciples, no, 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 don't, don't rejoice that even the demons are subject to you in, in my name, that they're guilty somehow of, of pride here. I'm not convinced that's what's actually going on here. I think Jesus is simply making a stark contrast I think that's the point of what he's saying. I think Jesus is saying, look, guys, there is an even greater reason for you to be joyful. And the fundamental reason the disciples should rejoice is because their names are written in heaven. Right? The language there of written in heaven is, is it, it's etched in stone. Right? It's carved in and it can never be erased. It can never be removed. It is, it is, if you like, engraved in the Lamb's book of life. And so Jesus is saying, if, you, if you're trusting in me, if you're one of my followers, your future is secure. Your, your name will never be removed. You, you belong to me. Satan, his mouth has been shut. 
There are no accusations he can hurl against you because I've paid the price. You need not fear death because I have died and been raised to to resurrection, everlasting resurrection life. So you have peace and reconciliation with God. You, if you are following the Lord Jesus, my friends, you are on the right side of history because you are following the Lord of history and the Lord of heaven and earth. So no matter what opposition you endure, no matter what rejection you experience, you can rejoice because your name is written in heaven. You are mine and I am yours. So you see, my friends, Jesus is saying disciples have, have deep, real, unshakable grounds for joy. Satan has been cast down and and stripped of his power by the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ has given the church authority to go into the world and trample over Satan and his power. And and Christ has secured the everlasting salvation of of his people so that their names are written, they're, they're etched in the book of life. So even when... We answer this call to missions and we experience heartbreaks and setbacks and opposition and and rejection and disappointment. We can rejoice because Satan is defeated and because our names are written in heaven. And so I hope, as I said, I hope we hear the commander of the the Lord's army speaking today from his word, and I, and I hope it emboldens us as a church to engage in this work of missions. That's, I think, what these verses are here to do, to encourage disciples in the missionary task of the church. And what I hope, I hope one of the results of, of today's message will be that we will depart today with, with a renewed thinking about what Trinity Presbyterian Church actually is. We are a household of faith. We are the family of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and the army of Christ. Soldiers called to to a a conflict. Soldiers called to engage in, in a battle together. We are an army commissioned by King Jesus to go into battle with the sword of the Spirit. You know what? If I could just be honest with you, as I think about the church more broadly, uh, I'm not just talking about Trinity. At times as a pastor, I am concerned about the professionalization of Christian ministry. And what do I I mean by that? I mean by that is the idea that it's the professional's job to do all of the work of ministry in the church. My friends, if that becomes the mindset of a congregation, what that leads to is is an inactive army, a passive group of soldiers, when in fact Christ calls and commissions the the entire army to participate in this great conflict, in this battle. You you, you read about, uh, again, going back to World War II, and you, you, you read about the people even back in the States, and it was incredible because everyone... Everyone was committed to the cause. Everyone contributed to the work in in some capacity. I think that's true when it comes to this battle. All of us as disciples and followers of Christ have a part 
to play. So I simply want to ask us a question to, to think about and discuss. What, what's, what's your part in it? How, how are you going to use the gifts that God has given to you in this battle of proclaiming the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? Another question we could, could ask to get at this is, how, how am I involved in the missionary task of, of the church? The thing is, my friends, we need, we need prayer warriors. We need soldiers who are on the front lines of the battlefield. We need, uh, we need uh, support, resources. Uh, we, we need uh, those who are able to equip and train more soldiers to go out and, and proclaim the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. But all of us have a part to play. So what's our part in it? How are you using those gifts? I hope, I hope this is part of how we view ourselves as, as a church. Somebody this week asked me the question, uh, Jared, what's, what's Trinity like? You know, what's, the, what's the culture of the church? And I'm, I don't even remember what I said. I stumbled over my answer, I'm sure. But I took that question with me and it came to my mind as I was thinking about Luke chapter 10 here. And I thought, I I hope that when someone asks me that question again, that I can say, well, you know, we, in part, view ourselves as an army serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has commissioned us to go into the world and to proclaim the kingdom and the possibility of peace through his name. I, I, hope, I hope that's a part of the DNA of our church. Well, let me close us in prayer. Oh Lord, we uh, thank you for this passage and we praise you this morning for your absolute victory over Satan and sin and death for us. Lord, we do pray that you would equip us and engage us in this work that you have called us to, to make known the gospel of peace and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would be found faithful in this work as we do it together as a church. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.